When we think of the 1963 March on Washington, whether we're old enough to remember it or not, what comes to mind? Dr. King proclaiming, I have a dream. A quarter of a million people of every color massed on the National Mall. Peter, Paul, and Mary singing, if I had a hammer. Do we remember the one person most responsible for its success? Bayard Rustin. Rustin was an unapologetic gay man in an era when most Americans viewed homosexuality as at best a disease and more likely a perversion. Rustin believed in the possibility of reconciliation among enemies, even when the world did its utmost to prove him wrong. But disapproval and abandonment by his friends wounded him. A natural leader, Rustin had to hold himself constantly in check and step back into the shadows in order not to jeopardize the movements for which he would have given his life. Rustin was a border crosser from the black world to the white, from the straight world to the gay, from the secular to the spiritual, from the arts to activism. He didn't like arbitrary boundaries, and they didn't like him. Born in 1912 in Westchester, Pennsylvania, Rustin was raised by his grandparents. His grandmother was an early member of the NAACP. W.E.B. Du Bois, James Weldon Johnson, Mary McLeod Bethune all stayed with the Rustins on their travels. In high school, Bayard won prizes in writing and oratory and lettered in football and track. Shortly before graduation, he wrote a poem that would prove prophetic. I ask of you no shining gold. I seek not epitaph or fame. No monument of stone for me. For man need never speak my name. But when my flesh doth waste away and seeds from stately trees do blow, I pray that in my fertile clay you gently let a small seed grow. At Cheney State, a Quaker college for African-American students, Rustin encountered the American Friends Service Committee, whose pacifist and social justice commitments inspired him. In the fall of 1937, Rustin moved to New York City. At last, he could pursue his intellectual, political, artistic, and sexual appetites without constantly looking over his shoulder. From the drag balls of Harlem to the socialist bookstores of Greenwich Village, Rustin roamed New York with a lightened step. Observing that communists often seemed the only white folks willing to defend black folks, Rustin joined the Young Communist League. When YCL quit the fight for racial justice, he quit YCL. In 1941, the Fellowship of Reconciliation, a Christian pacifist organization, hired Rustin as youth secretary. His new boss, A.J. Musty, preached social transformation grounded in spirituality. To know in one's inmost being the unity of all men in God, Musty declared, 
to express love at every moment and in every relationship, to be channels of this quiet, unobtrusive, persistent force which is always there. This is the meaning of pacifism. Traveling the United States for FOR, Rustin met Jim Crow for the first time in its full force. He didn't back down. On a bus from Louisville to Nashville, he sat in the whites-only section. The police beat him brutally. But in the spirit of Gandhi, Rustin offered no resistance and sought to converse lovingly with his assailants. When he was finally released, the district attorney addressed him as Mr. Rustin. Rustin dazzled friendlier audiences with his soaring oratory and angelic singing. Rustin not only inspired, he organized, spreading the word that Gandhian nonviolence might hold the key to the liberation of African Americans. In 1943, Rustin received his draft notice. Refusing alternative civilian service, he was sentenced to three years incarceration. In federal prison in Kentucky, Rustin protested segregated facilities. Held in quarantine, he sang Billie Holiday's song about lynching strange fruit through the ventilation shaft. The warden complained to his superiors that this troublemaker was, quote, plausible, smooth, and ingratiating, and possessed in abundance the rare quality of leadership. When a racist inmate assaulted Rustin with a stick, Rustin merely covered his head as the blows rained down. You can't hurt me, he calmly told his assailant. Defeated by Rustin's non-resistance, the man gave up. When Rustin was discovered having sex with other inmates, he was placed in solitary confinement, which put a stop to his desegregation campaign. Far worse than his punishment was A.J. Musty's rebuke of his gross misconduct. Rustin begged forgiveness for his weakness and stupidity. Musty implored Rustin to renounce homosexuality, which he deemed Rustin's death wish. Released in 1946, Rustin found his country even more hostile to his pacifist message than before the war. On the racial justice front, however, Rustin saw an opening. Eight days before he'd walked out of prison, the Supreme Court had ruled segregation in interstate transportation unconstitutional. Rustin and other activists with the Congress of Racial Equality resolved to test the ruling. Arrested in Chapel Hill for sitting in the white section of a bus, Rustin and others narrowly avoided lynching by an enraged mob. They went on to confront Jim Crow in four states, blazing the trail for the Freedom Riders 14 years later. Over the next decade, Rustin and his colleagues tested segregation laws again and again by sitting, walking, simply being where they weren't allowed. Their resistance laid the groundwork for the revolution of the decade to follow. Rustin was now working side by side with a new mentor, a. Philip Randolph, leader of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Randolph advocated both racial and economic justice. 
1948, spurred by Rustin, Randolph threatened massive civil disobedience unless the armed forces were desegregated. President Truman responded with his historic executive order 9981, effectively ending military Jim Crow. All the while, like many gay men in those inhospitable times, Rustin sought out sexual liaisons with strangers in public places, notwithstanding the risk of arrest and exposure. On January 21, 1953, Rustin gave a sparkling lecture on world peace to the American Association of University Women in Pasadena, California. On the walk back to his hotel, he solicited sex from two young men. Police spotted them and arrested all three. West Coast newspapers identified Rustin as a nationally known Negro lecturer. A.J. Musty felt personally betrayed. The Fellowship of Reconciliation issued a long statement widely circulated in the peace movement, terminating Rustin's employment. Branded a sex offender by the very organization that had nurtured him, Bayard Rustin never escaped the shadow of this humiliation. He would lead from the sideline, always painfully mindful that the single word Pasadena could discredit him. Sixteen years before Stonewall, no one, not Bayard Rustin and assuredly not the Fellowship of Reconciliation, possessed an adequate analysis or a vocabulary of gay oppression, let alone gay pride, through which to interpret or defend Rustin's conduct. Serving two months in jail, Rustin felt deserted by his closest friends. After bumping from job to job, Rustin finally caught a break when the War Resisters League, smaller and more radical than FOR, offered to hire him. For the next 12 years, Rustin led WRL to unprecedented strength and influence. On December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks was arrested in Montgomery for refusing to surrender her bus seat to a white man. When community leaders formed the Montgomery Improvement Association to lead a bus boycott, they placed 26-year-old pastor Martin Luther King Jr. at its head. Dr. King was aware of Mahatma Gandhi's philosophy of nonviolence, but as yet he knew little about its practical application. When Bayard Rustin arrived at Dr. King's home, he found guns everywhere. Seven years older and vastly more experienced in activism than King, Rustin quickly became King's confidant, strategist, ghostwriter, and liaison to the labor and peace movements. It was Rustin and Ella Baker who hatched the idea of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference as a direct action counterweight to the more cautious NAACP. For all his influence, Rustin carefully rationed his visits to Montgomery lest his reputation divide and set back the movement. When Rustin and King laid plans to march on the 1960 Democratic National Convention to protest its whites-only delegations, African-American Democratic Congressman Adam Clayton Powell publicly accused Rustin of undue influence on King. Privately, 
Powell threatened to smear King and Rustin as a homosexual couple. King abandoned the project, which never recovered. Devastated, Rustin resigned from SCLC. The AFL-CIO snubbed him, and SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, held him at arm's length. Leaping to Rustin's defense, the village voices Nat Hentoff called him the most brilliant tactician in the civil rights field. Powell's flamboyance on a platform, Hentoff wrote, is a poor substitute for Rustin's integrity and skill in the wings. Looking back a half century later, I, I wonder if Rustin's tactical genius might have saved Dr. King from the demoralizing failure of the Albany, Georgia campaign in 1962. The 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom brought Rustin back from exile. A. Philip Randolph, who had conceived the idea in the 1940s, wanted Rustin to organize it, but other civil rights leaders objected, citing Rustin's liabilities. Randolph outmaneuvered them by agreeing to organize the march himself, then naming Rustin his deputy. In eight short weeks, Rustin marshaled hundreds of thousands of Americans in a public demonstration that changed history. A master of detail, Rustin planned the number of toilets, blankets, first aid stations, buses, and parking spaces. Offended when federal officials predicted violence, he retorted, historically, Groups of Negroes have no history of creating violence in their demonstrations. Violence usually has been created by agents outside the Negro protest and very often in the South by police. With Rustin back in the spotlight, segregationists pounced. Fed information by J. Edgar Hoover's FBI, Strom Thurmond denounced Rustin on the Senate floor as a communist and sexual pervert. A. Philip Randolph fed up with attacks on his gifted protege, assembled a press conference. I speak for the combined Negro leadership, said the 74-year-old dean of the civil rights movement, in voicing my complete confidence in Bayard Reston's character. I am dismayed that there are in this country men who, wrapping themselves in the mantle of Christian morality, would mutilate the most elementary conceptions of human decency, privacy, and humility in order to persecute other men. It was a turning point for Rustin, for the civil rights movement, and for a gay rights movement that had scarcely begun. No one could remember an American public figure surviving an attack on their homosexuality. Rustin took Thurman's best shot and with Randolph's unflinching support, walked away stronger. The triumph of the march returned Rustin to prominence, but the public mood was beginning to turn against nonviolence, the core of Rustin's being. When 15-year-old Thomas Gilligan was shot dead by a New York police officer, Rustin's call for peace provoked loud boos from the enraged crowd. Young leaders of CORE and SNCC were talking less about nonviolence and more about black power. 
In February 1965, Commentary magazine published Rustin's essay, From Protest to Politics. He argued that the civil rights movement had to embrace the larger goal of economic security. To do so required a broad-based coalition, even if this meant strategic compromise. There is a limit to what Negroes can do alone, he concluded. Rustin's essay, at once visionary and pragmatic, was completely out of tune with the ideological purity and hectoring militancy of the late 1960s. White radicals denounced Rustin as a sellout. Black militants scorned him as a collaborator. But Rustin remained always firm in his demand for fundamental social transformation inspired by love and made possible by strategic planning. In 1977, shortly after turning 65, Rustin met 27-year-old Michael Nagel on a sunny New York street corner. For the first time, he reflected later, he found a solid, ongoing relationship with one individual. I spent years looking for exciting sex, he said, instead of looking for a person who was compatible. With Nagel's encouragement, Rustin began to speak out for gay rights. He advocated for New York City's first gay rights law in 1986, helping to overcome opposition from some African-American city councilors. History demonstrates, he declared, that no group is ultimately safe from prejudice, bigotry, and harassment, so long as any group is subject to special negative treatment. A few weeks after his 75th birthday, Rustin suffered a burst appendix. After the successful surgery, Nagel returned home from the hospital, only to be telephoned by a nurse that Rustin was in trouble and asking for Nagel. He raced back to the hospital. Decades before marriage equality, he was not allowed to see Rustin because he was not next of kin. Hours later, Nagel was told his lover had died of a heart attack. This year, President Obama will posthumously award Bayard Rustin the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian honor. Rustin liked to quote his mentor, A. Philip Randolph, the struggle must be continuous. For freedom is never a final act. Even in jail, even scorned and despised, Bayard Rustin never surrendered his freedom and never gave up the struggle. His courage, his devotion made us more free. May we continue his struggle. Amen. Ashe. And blessed be.